Most of us are aware that the textbooks used in public schools and what they teach in public schools is contrary to what we find in the Bible. But did you know that many churches today teach the same information from the pulpit, the information that goes contrary to the Word of God? Now, why do they do this? Well, they're teaching some of this information going contrary to God's Word so that they can be this term we hear today, politically correct and blend in with the world. Well, what is some of this information that is being taught from the pulpit in some of our mainline churches and, incidentally, in some of our Christian universities? Well, some of the things we hear in our public schools are abortion. Abortion is an okay thing to do. They also teach same-sex marriage. Incidentally, some of our mainline churches now accept same-sex marriage. They teach something called moral relativism. That's the idea that there are no absolutes, and that goes directly against the Word of God. And they also teach the age of the earth is billions of years old, as many of our churches and Christian universities do today. So our subject today will be science and the age of the earth. How old is this earth, and can we really determine scientifically how old it is? Well, the assumption of long ages. Notice I used the word assumption here. The assumption of long ages is an icon of evolution. It is what you might call the holy grail of evolution. It holds up all of Darwin evolution, because without long ages, the whole model of evolution falls apart. So, can we really determine the age of the earth? Well, these methods the, the scientists use, they say, give us an accurate, reliable age for rocks in the age of the earth. Let me read to you a quote from one of our biology textbooks, and I quote here. Using radioactive dating, scientists have determined the earth to be 4.5 billion years old, ancient enough for all species to have been formed through evolution. Well, two things about this quote. Number one, 4.5 billion years is not enough time for evolution to happen. Neither is a trillion years enough time for evolution to happen. Because, see, there is no mechanism that will cause one species to change in another. Yes, we can have variety within species, but the whole concept of mutations and natural selection do not cause evolution to happen. They hinder evolution, and that will be the subject of one of our future sessions, Mutations, Natural Selection, and Evolution. Now, the second part about that quote, 4.5 billion years, how did they come to this age? What method did they use to come up with that age? Well, the primary method they use is something called radioisotope dating to determine the age of rocks and the age of the Earth. Now, proponents or supporters of the evolution model, again, publicize radioisotope dating as an absolute accurate method for determining the age of rocks and the age of the Earth. And they come up with this, and we see this in our textbooks, this apparent consistency of ages. Every textbook we see, we get an age of the Earth, about four and a half billion years old. So it appears, and I use the word again, appears, to be consistent and accurate. Now, what is radioisotope dating? Well, it's also referred to as radiometric dating or radioactive decay. 
The process is used to estimate, and I'm going to use the word estimate, the age of rocks in the Earth. Now, what this means is there are certain types of atoms out there that over time will radioactively decay. In other words, they are unstable and they will radioactively decay spontaneously into another type of atom. For example, over time, uranium will radioactively decay into another element called lead. Now, don't sit around and wait for this to happen in your living room. This takes a long time. What we call the half-life of uranium to lead, the radioactive decay method here, is about four and a half billion years. Now, we're not saying scientists sit around for four and a half billion years and watch this happen. What they do is they take a sample of uranium atoms, see how long it takes maybe one or two or three or some of it to start to decay into the next element, and then they extrapolate that back. How long would it take half of it to decay, or how long would it take all of it to decay? So uranium to lead is one of the methods they use called radioisotope dating methods. Now there are other atoms that will decay. Over time, potassium, that atom will change into an argon atom. Again, don't sit around in your living room waiting for this to happen. So that's about one and a quarter billion years. Now some atoms go a little bit faster in their decay method. For example, carbon-14 over time will change into nitrogen. That half-life is about 5,730 years. Other atoms might take hours, minutes, or even seconds in their decay process. So part of the radioisotope dating, what we mean by that is, over time, one atom, and not all atoms, but certain atoms are unstable, and they will radioactively decay into another type of atom. Now, let's talk about the importance of this radioisotope dating, and I'm going to go back to this where we started. There are some churches out there today teaching billions of years. There are Christian universities today teaching billions of years. However, the straightforward reading of God's Word teaches that God created everything in six literal days. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God created in billions of years. It never says He used that long period of time. It says six literal days. And we, when we apply the principles of what's something called hermeneutics, in other words, understanding the text by context, the Bible gives us a number with the word day. That always means a day. God defined his days, evening and morning, that means a day. So the Bible teaches God created everything in six literal days only thousands of years ago, not billions. So there appears, and I use the word, appears to be a conflict in what the Bible teaches and what the scientists are getting for the age of rocks in the earth through radioisotope dating. Now, as Christians, we need to understand and believe that God is the creator of all things. And if He's the creator of all things, that also includes all the principles we understand about science. The Bible also teaches that God's Word is true. John 17, 17, Thy Word is truth. And the Bible also teaches all Scripture is God-breathed. So it all comes from God and His Word is true. So we have a problem here. Some in the church and some of our Christian university professors, rather than accept the literal, plain, straightforward reading of the Bible, have adopted man's wisdom and added billions of years into the Bible. Now, there are implications to doing this. Some very serious implications once we start adding things into the Bible that are not there.
Does it make a difference if the earth is young or old? Yes, it does. It affects the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's people out there saying, oh, it doesn't matter if it's old. It doesn't matter if it's young. Folks, that's called apathy. You know the definition of apathy? The Greek word means without feeling. Folks, as Christians, we're supposed to have feelings. We're supposed to care about God's word, not just say, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. Well, yes, it does. It affects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why. If this earth is billions of years old, if we're going to add billions of years into the Bible, the question I have is this. What was going on for those billions of years before Adam and Eve came on? The answer would be billions of years of death, decay, and disease. Because that's what the fossil record is. It's a record of dead things. It's a record of decay. Now think of this. If you're going to add billions of years on into the Bible, what that means is billions of years of dead things have occurred before Adam and Eve. In other words, the addition of billions of years in the Bible is a teaching of death before sin, decay before sin. That undermines the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as if you have a different gospel now because sin is no longer the cause of death. And if sin is not the cause of death, then who is? Are we really willing to blame God for death, decay, and disease? When in fact, the Bible clearly teaches it was due to sin. So the implications are enormous if we buy into the world's idea of billions of years. Also, bringing in billions of years affects the very character of God. If we said, as we just said, billions of years implies sin is not the cause of death, and now we're blaming God for all these things that happen. And also we can turn to Genesis 1.31 about the character of God. When God finished His creation, He called it very good. Are we willing to teach that God just called billions of years of dead things very good? So it not only affects the gospel, but it affects how we view God. And then it also relegates the Genesis flood as a local flood and not a worldwide flood as the Bible teaches. It also affects other parts of the New Testament. See, the implications are enormous here, folks. Romans 5.12 clearly teaches that death came through one man, sin. Romans 8, 20 through 22 teaches all of creation is in decay. All of creation is groaning because of one man's sin. Are we to not believe those two verses? Are we willing to change those two verses based on what the world wants us to believe so we can be politically correct and blend in with the world? Is that what we want to do in our church? I hope, hopefully say no. It would be better to stick with the Word of God than to abandon His Word. Also, a belief in billions of years affects the very words of Jesus Christ. You see, in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus Christ made this statement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Jesus stated there that man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of the creation. Is Jesus not right here, folks? Are we willing to change the words of Jesus or reinterpret His words so that we can be this politically correct and blend in with the world? Or are we willing to stand firm on the Word of God? And finally, the whole authority of Scripture is now called into question. You see, if we want to blend in the world and bring this billions of years into the Bible, in other words, teaching Genesis 1 really doesn't mean what it states there, 
It's really not what God meant to teach us that the days were little days, even though he clearly defined his days. Then when do we start believing the Bible? Who's going to determine what chapter in what book of the Bible is real history? Are we willing to do that? You see, what happens when we start adding billions of years into the Bible, start adding all these other ideas into the Bible? It no longer becomes the Word of God. It starts to become man's Word. Now, still, even after all this information, professing Christians are still willing to believe in billions of years because they are under the belief that scientists have proven the earth is billions of years old. In other words, their first source, their authority, is no longer God's Word. It is man's wisdom. This is why the church today is losing its effectiveness. Many churches are blending in with the world. We as Christians are called to influence the world, not have the world influence us. We are called to be salt and light. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, it states this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Then in Luke chapter 14, verse 34, it states, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? We are called to be salt to the world. We are called to be influencers of the world because we believe we have the truth. We know we have the truth. It is the Word of God, the living God the creator of all things. Then in Romans chapter 2, verse 19, I read, Confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, we read, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Folks, the world wants us to be without flavor. The world wants to live in darkness. Are you willing to stand firm on the Word of God and be salt and light to an unbelieving world? You see, the church needs to return to upholding God's Word as their authority in all matters. The church needs to return to trusting God's Word. The church needs to top, stop changing God's Word and stop making it man's Word. The church needs to stop being ashamed of God's Word. And the church needs to make a decision. Who will you follow this day? Will it be God or will it be man? Now, let's get back to radioisotope dating. How does it work? Well, it's commonly used to date what we call igneous rocks. Now, what do you mean by igneous rocks? Well, not all rocks are igneous rocks. Those are rocks that were once molten hot and then cooled. Rocks such as granite can be used to date by, through the radioisotope dating method. Lava, or what we call basalt, so granite and basalt, lava flows, once they have cooled, can be used for part as the dating process, used in the dating process. Rocks that were once molten hot and then cooled. Now, we cannot use radioisotope dating methods on most of the sedimentary rocks. Why not? because sedimentary rocks are formed from many particles that have come from many different places, usually washed there by water, and then eventually cemented together. So if you were to radioisotope date a, 
sedimentary rock, you would get enormous different amounts of dates because these particles come from many different areas and would have different ages. So they can only be used to date once rocks that were once molten hot and then cooled, igneous rocks. Now, let's talk about more about the dating. The clock for radioisotope dating starts when the rock cools and becomes solid. What do you mean by that? Well, during the molten state, scientists assume that the intense heat has caused all the daughter element to evaporate out of the rock. Now, remember those words, parent and daughter. Parent is the starting element, such as uranium, and daughter is the ending element, the lead. So in the molten state, they believe that the daughter element, like argon or lead, have all escaped. But once it solidifies, they assume there is no daughter element in there. Therefore, all the daughter element we find in a rock should be due to radioactive decay. Now, this dating method requires that we know at least two very important pieces of information. Number one, how much daughter element is currently in the rock? And that's not a problem. We can do that scientifically. We can measure how much daughter element is in a rock. So that's one piece they have to know. A second piece they have to know is how long did it take for this one element to decay into another? How long did it take for the parent element to decay into the daughter element? Or how long did it take uranium to decay into lead? And we can come up with a pretty good idea how long that takes. So those are two critical pieces that we must know. And they put those in the textbooks. And that is a good thing because that's good science. But there's one more piece of information that is critically important to know if our ages that we're getting from radioisotope dating are to be anywhere near accurate. And that one critical piece is called, are there any assumptions involved in these dating methods? Now, what do we mean by assumptions? Well, science, good science is based on observation. Good science is based on, can we repeat the experiment? or repeat the process. So science, good science deals with observation and repeatability. But when we talk about radioisotope dating, the dating of rocks that are allegedly millions of years old, we weren't there when that rock formed. So it's what we call historical science, something that happened in the past. We weren't there to observe it happen. So we must make certain assumptions when that rock was formed and how it was formed. So yes, there are assumptions involved. Unfortunately, this third critical piece of information is commonly left out of the textbooks. Why do they not mention the assumptions involved in radiometric dating? Because if these assumptions are false, folks, that would undermine the entire dating method and would also undermine the entire philosophy of evolution. So they do not want this mentioned in the textbooks. So yes, there are assumptions involved. Let me do an illustration of assumptions. And for this illustration, I'd like to use something called an hourglass. Now, what is an hourglass? Well, let's suppose behind this book here, I have an hourglass. I have an hourglass behind here. And maybe you can't see it. Nobody can see this hourglass. No. What is that? Well, this, this mechanism where sand falls down the bottom. We commonly use it for timing, especially in games. When we play games, we can use it for a timer. So I have an hourglass behind this Bible here, and you can't see it. 
Then I ask all of you out there to go to a room where there's no clocks or any timepieces and just sit there for a while. Then after a period of time, I ask everybody to come back and for the first time, you see the hourglass. And I ask you this question, how long were you all sitting in that other room? Now some of you with some mathematics background would take a look and see how much sand is on the bottom. Then you would calculate how fast the sand is falling, do a little mathematics, and you might say, well, Mike, we were sitting in that other room for 35 minutes. My answer might be this. All your mathematics is correct, but your answer is wrong. You see, there are certain assumptions involved in this. You did not see that hourglass until you came back from that other room. How do you know there wasn't some sand already on the bottom? You don't know that. That's an assumption. See, if there was some sand already on the bottom, all your calculations would be correct, but your answer would be wrong. Or how do you know I didn't go tap, 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 tap to make the sand fall a little bit faster? That would vary the rate. There again, all your mathematics be correct for what you're observing at that time, but your answer would be wrong. All right, how do you know I didn't open this thing up and add or subtract some sand? See, all those are assumptions. And if any one of those assumptions is false, then your age, your time, will also be wrong. So what I'd like to do is compare the assumptions used in radioisotope dating with the example we just gave with the hourglass. There are three main assumptions used in radioisotope dating. Number one, the knowledge of the starting conditions of that rock. How do we know there was no daughter element when that rock first formed? We don't. See, over and over again, we have done experiments with rocks that were recently formed through volcanic flow and other methods. And guess what we found in those rocks? Already containing daughter element. So we have shown that that assumption is false. Assumption number two, has this sample always been in an enclosed environment, in a closed environment? Meaning nothing has affected this rock over these alleged millions of years. But did you know water can leach right through rocks and add and subtract elements? That is well known. So that could cause your age to be wrong also. So there's the first two assumptions that have been shown over and over again to be wrong. Then the third assumption, has the decay rate always been constant? Well, it appears to be constant today, but you know, we can change that in laboratories. And there's very powerful evidence today from scientists that shows somewhere in the past that decay rate was once much faster than it is today. So all three of those assumptions have been shown to be faulty or wrong. So why aren't students being taught these assumptions? Again, because if they were taught the assumptions, it would cause doubt on these supposedly accurate dating methods. And if the dating methods are in question, then so is the whole philosophy of evolution. See, it is not the Christian that is afraid of science. We want all the science taught. We don't want, we're not saying we want creation taught in the science classroom, public schools. What we're advocating is let's teach the science, folks. See, it's not the Christian who is afraid of science. It is the evolutionist. They're purposely hiding the scientific evidence. Any scientific evidence that goes against the model or philosophy of evolution is completely censored out of our textbooks. So as Christians, we want science taught. 
but the evolutionists do not want the science taught. Now, we've looked at those three assumptions. There are also other problems with the radioisotope dating methods besides those three assumptions. And one is, there is a lack of consistency in these dating methods. In other words, we can take one rock sample, date it by four different radioisotope dating methods, and come up with four completely different ages. Some of these ages ranging hundreds of millions of years different in age. That fact right there eliminates the reliability of dating methods. So how do they know which one is the true age? If you take four dates, come up with four different ages, how do you know which one is true? Well, they just arbitrarily use the one that appears to fit the model the best. So different, different methods yield different ages. How will we really know which one's true? The textbooks, again, tout these methods as absolute reliable methods for dating. Folks, that is false information. Let me read to you. If you're not convinced of that, let me read to you a couple of quotes from our textbooks. Here again is from a biology textbook. It is the consistency of a radioactive, radioactive element's decay that makes radioactive dating accurate. Now here's one from a Earth Science textbook. I quote, Geologists use radioactive dating to determine the absolute ages of rocks. So yes, they are teaching this in the schools as absolute dating methods that reveal absolute ages. So let's examine this accuracy. First thing we need to understand, and this is not in our textbooks, when you take a rock sample to a lab to have it dated, there's a form that you can fill out. And on that form, there's one little box where you put in the estimated age of your rock sample. Now, wait a minute. Why do we need to have that? Folks, if these are absolute accurate dating methods, why do we even need to put in the estimated age? Isn't the method good enough to give us an accurate date? So there's a problem right there, estimated age, and that biases the whole process. Now, let me give you a real example. I want to show you a real example why we should not trust these dates were given in textbooks and by the media. In 1970, a volcanic flow was discovered in eastern Africa. It was dated using radioisotope dating methods, this is lava flow now, to be 230 million years old. Well, that's pretty old, 230 million years old. However, they also found an alleged human ancestor in the lava flow. Now, I use the word alleged. We were made in the image and likeness of God. There are no ape men out there, folks. That will be another session we'll have to cover. But they found this fossil, alleged human ancestor. And they dated this alleged human ancestor. Now, we can't use radioisotope dating methods for fossils. So, how, did they, how old it was? Well, they looked at it, the appearance of it, and they said it must be this old. Now, how old was this fossil? 2.8 million years old. Now, wait a minute. We have a problem. Now, we don't. But the evolutionists now have a problem. They just dated this lava flow to be 230 million years old. The fossil in the lava flow is 2.8 million years old. There's a conflict. The fossil and that rock, those rocks, should be the same age, but they're not. So what did the evolutionists do to reconcile this problem? Well, they abandoned their 230 million years that they were so sure of, redate the lava flow, and guess what the new date of the lava flow is? 
1.8 million years to match the fossil. Does that sound like these are reliable? And folks, we're not making this up. This is all well documented. But it doesn't stop there. Scientists found another alleged human fossil in the lava flow. And they dated this alleged human fossil to be 1.8 million years old. Well, now we have another conflict. The lava is now older than the fossil that, that's in the lava flow. So once again, they redate the lava flow, and guess what the new age of the lava flow is? 1.8 million years. Folks, this radioisotope dating method is not absolute. It's not even accurate. It's all based on what do they want it to be. Now, let's look at some examples. I want to go through some other examples of dating methods to show you that this is not accurate and it's not consistent. Sunset Crater in northern Arizona. There was a volcano there and it has lava flow all over, all over the area. They dated these rocks from that lava flow to be 200,000 years old. When in fact, their historical records show that volcano erupted in 1065 AD. That's not accurate at all. We're way off on that one. Lava flows from New Zealand were dated to be 275,000 years old, when in fact, those lava flows, those rocks were formed from three separate eruptions, one in 1949, one in 1954, and one in 1975. In other words, we know when those rocks were formed, but yet through radioisotope dating methods, they were dated to be 275,000 years old. Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington, volcano. That volcano erupted in 1980. So those rocks were formed in 1980, but yet they were dated to be several million years old. It doesn't work. Now, let's go to the Grand Canyon. A group of scientists went down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon to get what the evolutionists called the oldest rocks in the Grand Canyon. And these scientists took these rocks to a very reputable evolutionist dating lab but they did not fill out the estimated age of the rocks. In the evolutionist lab, they dated these rocks using four different methods and came up with four very different ages, hundreds of millions of years in difference in age, which undermines the reliability right there. So they arbitrarily chose one, and they said the date of this rock is 1.07 billion years old. Well, that's nice, 1.07 billion years old. Well, the scientists didn't stop there. These same group of scientists went to the top of the Grand Canyon to what evolutionists called the youngest rocks in the Grand Canyon. And they took these rocks and took them to the same dating lab. And again, did not fill out the form where it said estimated age. And they dated these rocks by four different methods and again came up with four very different ages. But they arbitrarily chose one. The date they gave to the youngest rocks was 1.34 billion years old. In other words, the youngest rocks, by their method, were 300 million years older than the oldest rocks. This method simply does not work. It does not give accurate ages. Incidentally, there are many evidences to support a young Earth, and we're gonna have a whole session just going through some of those methods that give a young Earth. 
You see, if we want to determine the age of this earth, the best place to really go is to go to the history book of the universe. It's called the Word of God, the Bible. See, it is better to use God's infallible Word to interpret what we see out there scientifically when it comes to history, rather than man's fallible Word, which we have seen to be incorrect over and over again. You see, God is the creator of all things, meaning true science, not evolution, but true science will always agree with His Word. It is time for our churches to stop being lukewarm and take a stand on the Word of God. It is time for the church to return to believing the Word of God and not man's wisdom. As the Bible plainly teaches in Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. It also teaches in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11, For you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Right there, folks, the host of heaven are bowing down, praising God, because He is the creator of all things. Will you not also bow down to God and stop bowing down to man? Thank you, and God bless you. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.